earlier, and obviously because of uh, how this morning has worked out, we have a sermon without a title, which is good, because I have a hard time coming up with a title sometimes, to be honest. But as he pointed out, it's better to have a sermon without a title than a title without a sermon, and uh, which I would greatly agree. So, Philippians 3, as we turn there this morning, I will begin reading in verse 2, and we will read from 2 to 15. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I started in verse 1. We'll continue. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ." And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word, and we must confess that left to ourselves, we do not have the capacity to understand it well. And so we pray that you would send forth your spirit now to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that would warm with affection towards your word, and wills that would gladly submit. Lord, Lord, strike us this morning. Transform us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So for many, in fact, we won't take a survey, but really, if if I asked you, what was your favorite book in the Bible, I'm sure Philippians would be high up on the list for many. Maybe not all. Um, I have my favorites. This is among them. I won't tell you my, my top three. But it is a favorite for many. And so it's very familiar to many. There are verses like in chapter 1, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and I'm sure you're very familiar with that, Paul's Paul's idea, sentiment there. Um, Also in 4.13, we see this very commonly in public, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I recently saw that on the back of a a power lifter. Seems seems maybe a little bit out of context and applied dubiously, but uh, still, you know what I mean. It's familiar, and there's much here to like. There are several other 
popular verses, and then there is the, the overall theme or feel of the book. Uh, some people have called Philippians the epistle of joy. Um, I don't think that's really big enough or broad enough idea for it, but certainly it's present, is it not? Words like joy, rejoice, rejoice again, and again I say rejoice. I mean, it permeates, it's throughout. So it's a fair observation. And then there's also a certain intimacy in the book. You know, as Paul had traveled, he'd come to the city of Philippi on his second missionary journey. But since then, it appears he had remained in close contact with them. And he, he, he speaks very warmly to them. He speaks in an affectionate way. And this also, this tone, seems to permeate the book. And certainly a contrast to the book of Galatians uh, I recently preached on, where they're, we're not going to do that again. Certain contrast to the book of Galatians we preached out of recently, uh, one of our last opportunities, where Paul is actually kind of harsh. Uh, he goes so far, far as to uh, call them names and, and even curse, <laughs> in, in a sense, or curse in a first, first century sense. Um, and that's not here. That's not here. Uh, it, it's just very warm, very affectionate, very personal. It's kind of like talking to family, uh, good family. And sometimes there needs to be a distinction made there. Um, so it's certainly a contrast to that. And so as we come to chapter 2, or chapter 3, where our text is this morning, we're kind of surprised. Uh, we get to chapter 2, and suddenly Paul is almost as if he's standing up on his box and shouting, Beware! 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 Look out! He says this three times. And so something has happened and something has shifted as Paul has come to chapter 2. It's really interesting. I compared Paul's speaking here as if he was preaching, really. Because, you know, when we write, it seems to be much more disciplined and measured at times. And so we think it through. We don't want to have to erase and start over. But when you speak, certain thoughts pop into your head and they, and they come out. And we end up going down various rabbit trails, and hopefully we can steer this back to the main idea at some point. But that's kind of like what it seems Paul is doing here. And, and really, you can picture it. Because Paul, by this point, is getting much older. This is, you know, 25-plus years since his conversion, 15-plus years since he went off on his missionary journeys. He's older, he's experienced, and he's been chained up in prison for about three years by now. Accumulated three years. And, and Paul was known to do much of his writing by dictation. So there's a sense in which this is a written letter, but there's a sense in which Paul is speaking. And you can kind of see that because as he is speaking to those he is so warm and affectionate with, something comes into his head that just sets him off. And this comes from years of experience as a missionary because everywhere Paul went, everywhere Paul went, he, he faced not just success but opposition. And there was always one party, one group of people that no matter where he went, if there was the, this party was present, there was opposition. They would oppose everything he said. They would argue. They would try to stir up the crowds against him. And I believe this is the group that pops into his head. I think it's very plain because when he, when he starts calling them names, he ends up with beware of the false circumcision. And so this is the party of the Judaizers. You can call them whatever you want, the party of the Jews, people who have claimed to have come to Christ, probably, but then saying that there is a necessity for the believer to also follow the law of Moses, to be circumcised. And circumcision really is just a representation, a single thing which he uses to represent that they must obey all of the law of Moses. They wanted them not to just become Christians, but Jews. And so they insist upon this, and they created great trouble for Paul over the years. Great trouble for Paul. 
You know, when he gives his list in the Corinthians of all the suffering that he had done, much of that was at the hand of the Jews. The many times he received the lashes, the couple of times he was stoned and left for dead. You know, this would be because of the opposition of the party of the Jews. And so we see in the text, it's interesting, I accidentally read verse 1, but see the word finally there. You know, the, the original thought was that as we, he was writing Philippians, as he's dictating this, he comes to where he is going to begin his ending. And so he says, finally, and then there would normally be some personal notes to various people, and then he would go off into a doxology and close the letter. But that's interrupted in verse 2. And if you were to drop back down to four, chapter 4, um, you would find another finally in verse 8. And so it's as if this entire section is an interruption. This interrupted his train of thought, but it was something that was so important, he had to get it out. Now, that reminds me of Jude. In fact, I... I'm determined to preach a sermon someday on the lost sermon of Jude, because Jude said, I had every intention of writing you about our common salvation, but there there was a problem. There's an error, there's a danger, and so he has to write about that. And so I always wonder, what did Jude want to write? Well, this is kind of like what Paul wanted to write, but he decided to take the time to do it. Because as he was dictating to them his concern for them, instructions to them, then This thought just leapt up to his head, this common enemy that he had dealt with for 20-plus years everywhere he went. And so this is where he begins. Now, as we break down the rest of our text, as we start in from verse 2 through 15, we are going to break this down into three parts. I want to give you three key words. I had a terrible time making these rhyme, so bear with me. First, we're going to see a disputation. That was the hard one. Um, Then we're going to see justification, and then finally aspiration. So if I were to expand those, we would say Paul's disputation with an unseen yet always present enemy. Secondly, we would say the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. And then aspiration, the believer's perfection. But to keep it more simple so that we can memorize it, or at least recall it somewhat, disputation, justification, and aspiration. Now, disputation starts in verse 2 and goes through 7. Disputation, just its root word, dispute, debate, argument, and with a, with a present, uh, uh, an unseen enemy, but an enemy that is unseen but has consistently been present as an enemy of the gospel, this party of the Jews, those who would make conformity to the law of Moses necessary for salvation. And Paul absolutely cannot allow that. Paul understands that if you take faith in Jesus Christ simply by the grace of God through faith and you add anything else to it, you take everything that came first in that equation and you make it a big zero. And Paul said, we can't have that. We can't add to the gospel because it adds to it in such a fatal way that it is no longer the gospel. So he starts off, and like I said, he's shouting, beware of the dogs. Now that's a terrible insult in the first century. In fact, it's the Jews who called Gentiles dogs because it was meant to put them down. Scavengers, dirty beasts. And yet Paul turns the tables and calls these people dogs. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers, the evil people, those who do evil, those who go about doing wrong. And then beware of the false circumcision. And in this, we see that he has identified them as Jews. But he says it three times. There is great intensity here. You can just see the guy who's taking dictation for Paul cringe a little bit because Paul has erupted, and he calls them names. He contrasts them to the true Christians. He goes on in verse 3, we are the true circumcision, us. 
We are the fulfillment of all that God was doing and all that he promised. We, those who have believed in Christ, are the true circumcision. We are the ones who worship in spirit, just as Jesus said. Those who will worship me must do so in spirit and in truth. And so that is an evidence that we are the true circumcision. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And really, when you boil it down, that's what the Jews were doing, putting your confidence in the flesh. Because we have to relate to it this way, because most of us are not Jewish. You know, most of us don't know many Jews. Most of us are not facing the temptation of converting to Judaism. But if you boil it down to this is nothing more than people who are trying to make it to heaven on their self-effort, it's a self-righteousness rather than an alien righteousness, then that's what Paul is dealing with here. So he, he speaks to them very harshly. He identifies himself as a party of the true believers. And then he goes on and says, now, if you want to talk about who might have confidence in the flesh, he goes, I can, I do. And he brags on himself a little bit. And so he starts in verse 4. Uh, anybody who has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to a zeal, a persecutor of the church. You guys think you're something? You guys are proud of your self-righteousness? You're proud of your achievements? He goes, I assure you, none of you have matched up to me. None of you. I mean, think about it. Paul, at a very early age, uh, either working for the council in Jerusalem or even possibly being on the council of Jerusalem, you know, the Council of Seventy that managed over the Jewish affairs. Uh, if not, he was certainly appointed by them as a representative because on his way to Damascus, he was going to arrest people who were members of this new way, this new faith, and bring them back for punishment. He is the one who stood there as a witness, as a representative of the council when Stephen was stoned to death for daring to, 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 to proclaim Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and in him the forgiveness of the sins. I mean, Paul was the man. And it's not just that, he had the pedigree. When he says a Hebrew of Hebrews, that means he was born, full-blooded Hebrew, a Jew born of Jews. When he says, as to zeal, a persecutor. When he says, circumcised of the, on the eighth day, that's because the descendants of Ishmael were circumcised in the 13th year. See, he was not just part of the shirt-tail relatives, he was a Jew of Jews. He had it all by their standard. And yet Paul came to the point, after expressing his confidence that he could place in the flesh, if they were correct in their argument, he sums it up regarding himself, and he says, as to righteousness, found blameless. Now, blameless in this sense doesn't mean uh, a moral perfection. Blameless in this sense, according to the Jew, is not that they didn't sin, but when they did sin, they took part in the sacrificial system which God had provided, which they would think then covered their sins. But they misunderstood because the sacrificial system was just constant, constant reminder to point them to Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. It wasn't the obedience. It wasn't the constant performing of the rituals. But if that was enough, Paul said, I would have had it. If that got you into heaven, got you into favor with God, gave you a right standing before him, I, Paul, could, 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 could stake that claim. The problem is... It's not enough. It's not enough. Paul knew that when it comes to justification, which is a word we're going to transfer here very quickly, the idea of just how can a man be made right before God? He must be justified. He must, he must be, that's a legal term in which he is found acceptable to God on some basis. And yet Paul had found a bankruptcy 
of the basis of self-righteousness. And so, so even though he had this, this pedigree, even though he had this experience, he had the education, uh, he had the position in society, he found out, came to realize that that was not enough. He knew that when it comes to justification or being made right with God, being found acceptable to him, that man's works always fall short. We see this in Paul's other teachings in the letter to Galatians, which he'd written, oh, 15 years before this one. A man is not justified by works of the law, he says in chapter 2.16. In Romans 3.20, he says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified before God. So Paul is telling him, you can play your games, but it's not enough. And he sees it as such a grave danger, such a grave danger. It is so deceptive. You know, when it comes right down to it, when it comes right down to it, we are all much more susceptible to this than almost anything else. We really are, Um, especially Americans. We're so independent. We are so independent. We think we can make it on our own. We think pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, make life better today than it was yesterday. And we think this in the spiritual realm as well. And we have forgotten that we are dependent creatures upon, dependent upon an independent God. The one and only independent being in all of creation, in all of existence, in all of the universe. He himself is independent. And everything else, simply by virtue of being created, makes you dependent, makes you needy. And it's only in realizing or seeing or confessing this neediness that you actually can come to the Father. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. And whatever you are depending on, in whatever you're thinking you achieved, and you know, no matter who you think you're comparing yourself to and better than, because that, that's really common, is it not? You know, as we run this race, what do we do? Well, I'm ahead of him. Okay, that's self-righteousness. And that's what Paul is warning against. So he says your righteousness is not enough. Any system of self-righteousness rather than this alien righteousness of biblical justification nullifies the gospel of free grace. In fact, B.B. Warfield, who was a longtime teacher, a theologian, early 1900s, I'm looking at Herman Van Steedem because he knew John Murray, who was also a theologian in the early 1900s. You didn't happen to meet B.B. Warfield, did you? No? He's, he's a little before little before, B.B. Warfield wrote a book, The Plan of Salvation. And in this, he says that when it boils down to it, no matter what else you want to try to add to it or how you want to define it, there's really only two choices when it comes to salvation. Only two. He labels one autosoterism, which just simply means self-salvation. And then the other one is simply salvation by God. So there's only two choices. Either God saves sinners or sinners save themselves. And doesn't that sound like a contradiction even as the words come out of our mouth? How do sinners save themselves? The problem is we don't see ourselves as sinners. We don't understand that we've been born in a deficit. And because of that deficit, that corruption of our natures, we sin. But the problem goes clear back at birth. We're born that way. How can someone like that make themselves good enough for God, for a holy God, for an independent God, for an all-powerful God? How do we make ourselves good enough? So it's either God saves sinners or it's that sinners save themselves. And that's just a contradiction in terms right out, the, right out the gate. It is not. It cannot be done. How can a sinner save himself? What can he offer? He's got nothing. He brings nothing. So that means God must save sinners. If anybody's going to be saved, and certainly we claim that he has saved us, do we not? If anybody's going to be saved, it's going to be because of the work of God. And this brings us to the definition of justification. 
if, if justification deals with the issue of how can a man be made right before God, then we need a definition of the term, do we not? So if we advance on down the page to verses 8 and 9, Paul is now on the other side of the argument. In fact, in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing greatness, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. So here he tells us that he has discovered something that puts everything else that he thought he could stand on in its proper place. And what is its proper place? The trash heap. He says, I even count these things as rubbish. I mean, that's literally what the word means, rubbish or dung. And he found that everything else he used to look to, rely on, try to achieve was nothing better than the stuff we throw away. Because he came to a new understanding. He came to the real understanding that salvation is of the Lord. Now, how did he come to this understanding? And I want to be very specific here because many of us think, okay, well, Paul, Paul continued to study and he discovered something new, and so he reoriented his thinking. Or Paul, he, he just realized the bankruptcy of one, so he found something else, and so he followed that path. That's not true. Paul persisted in his blindness and in his arrogance until he was absolutely attacked and transformed by the grace of God. This is not something Paul came to on his own, because that would be another human achievement, would it not? That's not what happened here. Paul was transformed. Paul was overcome by God's grace. Paul was acted upon by God, actually against his will. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't looking in the right places. He wasn't doing the right things. And yet God came along and made him new. Made him new from the inside out. Made him new from the foundations up. This was a work of God. You remember the story as Paul's on his way to, the, to Damascus because he's going to arrest Christians and bring them back, you know, possibly for death, as had happened to Stephen, possibly. He was going to bring them back and put them on trial before the same court that had condemned Stephen. And on his way, God arrested him. The Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Why are you persecuting me, Paul? He said, Who are you, Lord? It's Jesus. And this is what changed Paul's life. Now, God doesn't give each of us a vision like that. But God gives us the word preached and the proclamation of the gospel. And that's still the same. That's still the same. That's God calling. That's God calling to you. It is the means he uses to transform people. It is the means he uses to give them new hearts, hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone. That is his means of bringing somebody, of changing their entire being, and with that change of being comes new faculties. We see in a different way. We understand in a different way. We submit to different things. We see the word of God for what it is, and we submit, and we hear, and we follow. But it's entirely a work of God. So Paul didn't just evolve into a better understanding. Paul was transformed, and then, can you imagine somebody with Paul's understanding of the Old Testament? And then suddenly he realizes, it's Jesus I'm persecuting. And then to go back through with his great learning and see how Jesus fills in all the gaps. I I, I would love to be there just to watch him think through that process. Amazing. Jesus fills in all the gaps. He's like the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle that clarifies the whole thing so you can see the glory of the gospel of God for his people. You can see the work 
You can see what God is about and what he's doing, and it's all in the person of Christ, and it is all the work of God. It's God who saves sinners. Colossians 1.13, For he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness. See, that's where we were. Some of us are trapped in the dungeon cells. <laughs> Some of us are inhabiting maybe the upper stories. But we're all in the domain of darkness. And yet he rescued us. See, that's a term of violence. He snatched us away. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul had enacted a spiritual revolution in the core of Paul's being, making him new, giving him new faculties, giving him sight to see the spiritual bankruptcy of his former pursuit and the value of gaining Christ. This new vision, this new understanding enabled him to see the treasure hidden in the field. Do you remember when Jesus was speaking and teaching about the kingdom? The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when somebody found that treasure, stumbled upon it, they dug a hole in the ground and hid it, went and sold everything they had and came back and bought that field because they found something of a greater value. Or the merchant who found that pearl of great price. You know, he found a pearl of great price. He had to possess it. He went and sold everything else he had that he could have this. And in the selling of all those things, that's still not a work. <laughs> that's still not a work. When Paul calls these things what things were to my gain, I now consider loss. That's still not something Paul did. He's simply looking back by comparison, saying, now that God has acted on me and given me a vision to see, I realize the worthlessness and the bankruptcy of all those things. And my prayer for you today is that if you haven't done that, you will. I pray that God will give you eyes to see. Whatever you're depending on, whatever you think you could muster up from the core of your being to do good, to be kind to your neighbor, to accomplish something, who knows? We all have, we're all religious, We've been made spiritual beings. We all worship something. So maybe, maybe your particular self-righteousness is religion. Maybe you're willing to climb a mountain to listen to the words of the holy man at the top. Maybe you're willing to cross the ocean. Maybe you're willing to offer up some kind of sacrifice. But that's not enough. You need something changed in the core of your being. You need a new heart. You need God to act upon you. You need ears to hear. And I pray that God gives them today. And so... Let me give you Paul's definition of justification. Because at the end of verse 8, he says, I count them as rubbish, as trash, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So what is it to be found in him? Well, thankfully, Paul goes on. He says, found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Even though you have been born in sin and have sinned against a holy God, he makes up that deficit. Salvation being a gift from God. And how does he accomplish this? By sending his son. In the person of Christ, who was man and God, but perfectly holy and perfectly sinless, lived a righteous life, offered it up as a sacrifice to the Father on behalf of sinners. Not for himself. For sinners. This is the life, the ministry of Christ the sacrifice of Christ for you, and is a gift from God on the basis of faith. And the good news is you don't even have to struggle to, to, to somehow stir up enough faith to believe because even that faith is a gift from God. Even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive. We were in the domain of darkness, but God snatched us from it and placed us in the kingdom of his Son. 
And all that he requires is that we believe it. But remember what I said about Paul? He changed him from the core of his being, gave him new faculties, gave him new abilities to understand, to see, to feel, all these different things, so that he sees it and he believes it is true. See, the regeneration, the work of God comes first and transforms a person. Then he believes in the gospel of God. And he receives forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been redeemed by faith in Christ. It's just believing. And I pray that God would do that work in you today. Give you ears to hear. Change you from the inside out. Let's move on to aspiration. Aspiration. To aspire to something. See, as Paul was arguing with a hidden group of opponents, he's continuing. Because any time the gospel of grace is preached and the gospel of the salvation is a work of God alone, then the number one complaint that comes up and says, well, but that, that, that means you can do anything you want. There's the accusation that this preaching of the gospel actually urges licentiousness, which is just basically, you know, freedom. Freedom in the bad sense. You can do anything you want. And it really doesn't matter what you do, because if God's going to save you, he's going to save you. So it doesn't matter. And so this can lead into just a spiritual lethargy or laziness, or this can lead even into greater sin, into immorality. You know, we can't out God. If God's going to save me, he's going to save me. And so the accusation against the church was that this will lead to licentiousness. And Paul deals with that right here. Because he says the, the actual truth is that when God works in a new person, he has made them new, and this new life will look new. Will not continue as it was. They will value different things. They will do different things. And he says that actually, <laughs> actually, he aspires to more. It's really, you know, when the psalmist says, oh, taste and see the Lord, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, but see, that's just the taste that whets the appetite. And then you want more. I mean, how many of you have tasted some new dish for the first time and said, wow, that's the best thing I've ever, ever seen, best thing I've ever had? And they say, but no, I don't want any more. See, that's just ridiculous. And so Paul aspires for more. He's heading off another argument. The, the, the accusation that the doctrine of free grace leads to licentiousness, leads to a dissolute life, a life of nothing but waste and even immorality, and he shows that true faith or conversion or new life actually enlivens, invigorates, motivates, gives new appetites, and drives the believer. Rather than making them passive or lethargic, it aspires, inspires to pursuit of more. I want more. Do you want more? Speaking to those of you who already know the goodness of God at this point, do you want more? See, God doesn't even now. We're not to expect a moral perfection. Okay? But there should be a desire for more. I mean, is there some part of you that just wants more? And if not, check yourself. Go back to step one. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved from your sins. But God, having remade you, has given you new appetites, and you should want more. Paul says he wants more. He says, uh, starting in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The first thing that he wants more of is he wants more fellowship with his Savior, that I may know 
Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He wants the power of his resurrection. Jesus said, I came that they might have life. They might have abundant life. They might have life to the full. The power of resurrection, having been buried with him and raised with him to newness of life. Walking in the power of the resurrected Jesus. Power of his resurrection. We certainly want more of that, do we not? And then how many of us, though, want the fellowship of his sufferings? <laughs> not as popular, right? Not as, I, I don't blame you. I, you know, I heard Billy Graham say one time he doesn't know why some Christians suffer so much because his life had been fairly easy in spite of him having served the Lord. And his life had been easy. His life was devoid of suffering in many ways. And I think we as Americans, because we have lived in such a time of peace and we're so isolated from the suffering in the world and among believers especially, this is foreign to us. But Paul says, look, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And I'll even take the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings if I might know him. Him who saved me. Him who suffered on my behalf because of my sins. I'll gladly walk through the valley of the shadow with him. That I might know him. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings. Even being conformed to his death. Fine. So be it. Paul is not a glutton for punishment. He's willing to go there to know Jesus, the one who died for him. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, when I first read that, that that almost sounds like Paul's slipping back into, if I do all these things, I will achieve heaven. (laughs) That's not what he's saying here. He's actually expressing the mystery. The mystery. Okay? I get my sins forgiven. I want to know him and walk with him, more fellowship with the Savior. And then somehow, wonder of wonders, I actually attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's not just salvation for here and now. It includes the future. Paul's just amazed at that. You know, I was thinking of that in the shower this morning. God does all this for us. All this. He he doesn't overlook all my sin. He takes note of it. And he fixes my problem. He saves me. He changes me. And then as I walk along the pilgrim's pathway, he strengthens me. He encourages me. He instructs me. He is with me. He protects me. He guides me. He shows me new things. <laughs> you know, it's exciting. And then when I get to heaven, what do I get? Rewarded. Rewarded. See, Paul's amazed at that. You should be amazed at that. And we'll come back to that idea. Aspiration. He wants to know his Savior no matter the cost. He wants to know, he wants to finish well. He wants to finish well. That's another thing he aspires to is to finish well and receive the prize. See, we're not rescued by Christ for justification only, but for a purpose, for a plan, and to receive an inheritance. If we look again in verse 12, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. See, there's more. We keep on keeping on because there's more. Christ has laid hold of you for a purpose. There's more for you. Keep stepping. There's more for you. Christ has laid hold of you for a purpose, and so we press on to to lay hold of that, whatever that would be. In verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He realizes he's not home yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. You see how, this, how this, this, this new nature is aspiring for more? He presses on. He says this twice. In verse 12, I press on 
so that I may lay hold of the purpose for which Christ called me. That's life here and now. And I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's then. All these reasons motivating us to keep on keeping on. That's why he repeats it. But I press on. He aspires to finish well, to receive the prize. And he is single-minded in this. He says, press on two times, verse 12 and verse 14, and he gives us a picture of what he's talking about. In verse um, 13, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. See, this is a picture of a sprinter. For those of you who don't know, Paul was actually a sports fan. He talks about how he beats his body to make it his slave. He talks about running so as to win the race. So, I mean, he mentions boxing. He mentions track and field, all these different things. He was actually a sportsman, most likely. I think that's a fair, fair claim. He says, though, he's single-minded in this. One thing I do, I'm pressing on. He's using the picture of a sprinter. Now, in Hebrews 12, we get a similar phrase to this, different author, I know. But there we are to continue the race that Christ set us for us, set before us. We are to run with endurance. And so we need to be willing to run for a long period of time. But here, he's using the picture of the sprinter. Somebody who is giving all their effort. You know, I mean, I'm not saying joggers don't suffer. In fact, they suffer so much, I'm sure, that it's not a sport I'm taking up. I was not made to be a jogger. But I was made to endure. So that's a healthy picture. That's something we need. It's a characteristic that's good for us. But here, we're talking about the degree of effort that we give in the process. And that's more like the picture of a sprinter. When he says, forgetting what lies behind. I remember running track. I hated it. I didn't ever join a track team. But in elementary school, everybody's required to go out and run the 600 and get timed in and all this. And it was all I wanted. But one of the things, one of the things the coach would always tell you is stop looking at the people beside you. And certainly never turn your head back. And the more of a sprint that you're running, the more important that is because it impedes your progress. Whether you realize it or not, track races often come down to that last split second, do they not? Stop looking behind. Focus forward. So he says, forgetting what is behind and reaching towards what's ahead. See, this is the, this is the person in the, in the, in the 100-yard dash who's it's coming close. And what do they do, though? Do they, do they relax for that last step? No. They, they throw themselves over the line. They give their last ounce of effort. That's the picture he's given us here. That's how he walks. That's how he tries to live day by day. He's pressing on. He's giving it all he's got. He's looking ahead. He is straining forward. He is running with effort. And then he tells us that this is not just his race. Is not just his calling. In verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. See, we're supposed to have the same attitude. This is Paul giving us the example. He even gives that to us again in verse 17, which we did not read. But brethren, join in following my example. I'm not doing this just for myself. I'm also trying to give you a picture of how you are to proceed. You are to press on. You are to give it all you've got. And he says, as many as are perfect have this attitude. Now, for those of you thinking that you have to reach a certain level of spiritual maturity before this is a requirement of you because of the word perfect, I assure you it's not. Um, perfect can be used many different ways in the New Testament. When we look back to verse 12, perfect there is used of moral perfection. And for those who would teach that in this life Christians are morally perfect, you should read the words of Paul there. I haven't obtained that yet. Paul's not morally perfect. We won't be morally perfect in this life. But now the second use of perfect in verse 15 really has to do with a completeness or a wholeness, and it's the idea of maturity. 
So what's the mature Christian? What's the attitude of the mature Christian here? They aspire. They do not wake up each day just hoping to survive the day. They aspire for more. They aspire to live for the glory of the one who lived and died for them. Finally, what is the prize we are to aspire to? Prize is mentioned here. Back in verse 12, the second part of it, he talks about running to lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. There's like an object. I was, I was grabbed by Christ to lay hold of something. What is it? He goes on when using this, this picture or illustration of the track. In verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize. Now, that's, that's fitting with his track analogy, is it not? What is the prize? I don't know. I'll just cut right across. I'm not sure. But I do think we have some hints. In the same picture of track, he says, I press on towards the goal, in verse 14, of the upward call of God in Christ. This may be another little illustrative analogy. The idea of the upward call. In the Olympic Games, the victor was called up to receive his prize. And at the time, the prize would have been just, you know, the, the, the little crown made of leaves kind of thing. But, but let's look at the word crown, just the idea of the, the prize. Because the Bible does talk about the idea of a crown. The Bible speaks of a crown in several places. In 2 Timothy 4.8, there is laid up for me, this is Paul speaking again, in fact, 2 Timothy being like his last words, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. And to all who have loved his appearing. Not just Paul. There's something waiting for you. A crown of righteousness. We turn to James chapter 1, verse 12. He who perseveres will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Crown of life. 1 Peter 5, 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Crown, crown, crown. Now, I do tend to think, I do believe, these are all used figuratively here. I'm not saying it's a literal crown. I'm not saying as we enter the pearly gates, we're going to get a crown placed on our head. But there is a part of me that would really like that. I, I, I would. I think that'd be neat. But not just so I could walk around glorying in my crown. Not just so I could see if my crown is bigger or shinier than yours. Okay? But I do want a crown. And why? And for that, we, we, we have to come to Revelation chapter 4, which we're not turning there. Seth's going to get there in just a few weeks, and we, he can correct whatever I say here. <laughs> but in Revelation chapter 4, we see a scene in heaven of worship. Perfect worship. Glorious worship. And not just, not just us. Although, when we're there, we'll have clean robes. Okay? But the living creatures around the throne... And the 24 elders sitting on the crowns. And the voices crying out from every direction, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when this worship takes place, what do the elders do? They, they bow down before him who sits on the throne, and they cast their crowns at his feet. That's why we should want a crown. In the presence of God, don't you want something to give them? You know, and I know maybe people will accuse me of being a little bit crass here, self, self-centered motivation. That's okay. Where else do I get a gift worthy of my king but something he gives me? 
totally unearned on my own because it's all a work of God. And yet, boy, when the time comes, I want something to give them. Don't you? So all together, let's aspire for more. Let's keep pressing on. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Uh, You have saved us, and you have not left us to ourselves, but you have spoken, committed it to writing, Lord, that we might be taught, guided, encouraged, strengthened, all these things. Let us learn to value your word, but let us learn more and more to value the giver of the word. I pray that you would make this effective among us today, that you would glorify yourself in us, and that you would, that you would bring us home. In Christ's name I ask. Amen.